Hi, uh, this is Mike Fader, host of the weekly PRN program, The Turning Point. This morning, I'm going to be doing a special program about the events and the effects of the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. And I uh, actually, when I was coming into the building here before, uh, right next to our building where the uh, studios and offices of PRN are located is a firehouse. And uh, there were some guys, some firemen, outside in front warming up on some bag bagpipes, which uh, I assume they'll be playing at a dedication ceremony later. They uh, also, um, they're also uh, have uh, put a big banner outside uh, with the name of one of the firefighters, obviously, who died um, during those attacks. Um, I know that, that a lot of you listening right now or listen to this program, uh, even if it's a podcast later, I know you were in New York City that day and um, and have vivid memories of what happened. And like a lot of people, including myself, you sort of try to put the, you know, you put the shock and the horror behind you. You don't want to, after all that time, you don't really want to relive it so vividly. And um, even if you don't try to put it away on purpose, it just sort of recedes. There's a natural mental and emotional process, I think, in most of us that allows for the painful experiences to, re to recede into memory and uh, just uh, go into the subconscious, into the unconscious. But I think, obviously, that we need on such days of the anniversary now of such an important life-changing and world-changing event uh, for all of us, for the country, for anybody who was here that day, that, you know, obviously it's important to remember for our own sake, for the sake of society, it's important to remember and reflect on what happened. And to look back on the events of that day, 16 years ago, we have a guest, and uh, William Raff, who is going to talk to us about his experiences in the World Trade Center. He was on the 82nd floor of the <coughs> South Tower when the second jet hit. And Mr. Raff is a member of the World Trade Center Survivors Network and a docent at the National 9-11 Memorial Museum. Um, but I want to just be clear, uh, my guest is not here representing either of these organizations today. Well, he might be able to talk about them, but uh, he's representing himself. Um, uh, hello, Mr. Raff. Good morning, Mike. Hi. Um, first of all, can you tell me, uh, is there anything you wanted to say before we uh, start our interview? Uh, I just uh, marked the time when... Uh Flight 11, America's Flight 11, struck the North Tower at 8.46, and that began the tragic events of the day on September 11, 2001. And it was, uh, what time was it uh, right around, um, right around, was it right around now at this time? Uh, yes, at 8.46, uh, the first flight, 87 passengers and crew on board struck the North Tower at 9.03, uh, the second, United Flight 175, struck the tower that I was working in. I had been on the 82nd floor of uh, the South Tower on the south side of the building toward the east. And because so the first plane struck the North Tower uh, 17 minutes before the second plane struck the tower I was in, so, so, I did uh, have some time to uh, begin to evacuate. All right. I wanted to get into the details of it, but let, let's back up a little bit. So it's actually... 16 uh, years to the, almost to the minute that, uh, that you had this experience, that this experience started for you. So can you, can you tell me a little bit about the 9-11 Museum and the Survivors Network? 
um, <clears throat> following immediately following these events, of course, there were many thousands of survivors, uh, some of whom suffered terrible uh, trauma that day and what their own experience consisted of or what they saw, um, and they needed help. Uh, they needed psychological help. This was an unthinkable event, and certain things happened on September 11th that uh, are in the extreme, uh, in the psyche, really affected people and caused great damage to their, to their psyche. Um, and uh, I was able to evacuate without uh, suffering so many visuals, but um, the Survivors Network came together as a group just to support each other, and we had uh, mainly through the computer, we'd get emails every day, people looking for support or just talking about their feelings, and that helped a lot. Uh, over the years, uh, especially I believe it was 10 years after September 11th in 2011, that the group kind of reached the point where uh, uh, it became somewhat inactive, but still survivors will continue to uh, stick together. Following my uh, career, that uh, after 44 years I retired in uh, April 2016, mm -hmm. um, I had an opportunity to speak with the, an associate curator at the uh, National 9-11 uh, Memorial Museum, and um, I was extremely impressed. This museum is a very special place and realized that there's a volunteer opportunity. Uh, being retired now, I had the time and I subjected myself or <laughs> had the privilege of the training mm -hmm. they offered and was able to uh, come into the museum as a, as a docent. And I well, recommend that any, anyone who hasn't been to the museum, uh, it's, it's a very important place to visit. Um, where exactly is it located? Uh, the uh, National 9-11 Memorial Museum is located at the World Trade Center. And it says, uh, so if it's national, um, is this actually funded by, uh, is this privately funded or federal, federal government funds this? It's privately funded, uh, mainly through donations that are solicited, uh, as well as the, the entrance fees. Mm -hmm. No no federal money uh, is received, and it's... Uh, it's an expensive place to run, I think, because uh, uh, there are many, many people who, who work there, security, and there are a lot of volunteers as well. It's a big operation, and it's an impressive uh, museum that's also connected with the memorial that's outside. Um, you said you retired. Um, and maybe in a little bit you can tell us about what kind of work uh, you were doing and had been doing afterwards. But you, do you currently live in New York City? Uh, yeah, I live in Greenwich Village. I've lived there for uh, many years. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, on uh, September 11th, I was able to evacuate uh, and get to my home relatively quickly. Um, I had been uh, in the financial services uh, industry hmm. 44 years altogether. Uh, I started with uh, one of the large, uh, well, large accounting firms, Ernst & Young, and then moved on into uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Merrill Lynch and uh, UBS, and then for the last or the final 21 years, from 1994 until uh, I retired, it was uh, Mizuho Bank, a very large Japanese bank. Um, that bank had been located in the, the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Uh, it was in process of merger with uh, another Japanese bank that 
was on the in the North Tower on the 48th, 49th floor, the Chicago Bank, and then a third bank uh, in Midtown in Rockefeller Center, uh, Industrial Bank of Japan. So, so on September 11th, the three banks were kind of in the process of merger, but it hadn't legally occurred yet. Uh, unfortunately, uh, two of two of the banks were in the uh, World Trade Center. I was senior vice president in uh, corporate function. And I dealt with uh, board of directors of one of the U.S. banks we had. And uh, I enjoyed my career very much. But uh, when it came time to retire, I was uh, right. happy to move on and do other things. And uh, especially to find this volunteer work is very rewarding. So um, that morning, uh, you were on the 82nd floor working in the office there. And um, how long had you been in that office at that point? 2001. Uh, well, that's the uh, the place I started mm -hmm. in 1994, and uh, on that day, uh, it was just like any other day. In fact, um, it was kind of like today. It, the sky was very, very blue. I remember it was a Maybe beautiful it's a day. Blue yeah. that we only have in September, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a very ordinary day. You know, the summer had passed, and Labor Day was over. Uh, it was a Tuesday. I took the subway to work, as I usually do, the E-train, and brought to my office maybe at 8.20 or so, uh, just looking at my computer, reading email, eating a cinnamon raisin bagel, drinking coffee, uh, and then something happened. So when the, uh, when the plane hit the North Tower, that's something um, that, that, I mean, some, did some people in your office, did it go all the way across so that some people had... Because some people could actually see that, or uh, did uh, what, what kind of affected it when it hit the North Tower? I mean, that's not you were in the South Tower, so did you feel it? Did you hear it? I mean, what happened then? Uh, at eight forty-six, uh, I did not see anything or hear anything. My company had uh, four floors: uh, seventy-nine, eighty, eighty-one, and eighty-two. I was on the top eighty-second floor, uh, and I was on the south side of the building. So when Flight 11 struck the North Tower, it was on the north side. It was a completely opposite side. And um, I did not see the impact because of where I was located, and the sound didn't carry. Hmm. Uh, but my colleagues who, since we had the whole floor, there were colleagues on the other side of uh, my floor who could see the North Tower, and they could see uh, enough to know that this was a very serious thing that had happened and that we needed to evacuate. Um, a colleague actually, uh, well, the, the offices were somewhat uh, restricted, so we couldn't walk freely around. And a colleague who had been on the other side and saw what happened started to bang on the door of my office. Uh, it was a big room and uh, had a main entrance. Mm -hmm. He didn't have access, so he was banging on the door just yelling, get out and smoke. I spoke with him about a week ago, and he said to me, I'm looking at my hand right now. I have a scar in my hand, and that came from when I was banging on a door telling, telling everyone to get out. I think because of him, uh, lives were saved, and I uh, credit him uh, for alerting me so that I could start to evacuate. And that's, in fact, when I began to realize something's going on. I have to get out of here. And uh, that's all, all of this before the other one hit. Um, I mean, yeah. where were you exactly? Were you on your way out? Were you evacuating um, when the other one hit the, your tower? Um, I was uh, 
starting to walk down the steps. In fact, the elevator wasn't working. First, yeah. Uh, well, it would have been because at that time the building had not been affected at all. But we were trained to use the stairs in case of a fire or similar oh, right. emergency. Right. And so we walked to the stairway. You know, my first thought was, well, something has happened. Maybe that some minor accident or air conditioning system is blown out. You know, I, I think I'll, I'll leave the office. I'll go get out of the building for a couple of hours and, and come back, you know, when everything blows over. Mm. Uh, my second thought was, well, no, uh, maybe I better collect my wallet and my keys and I'll go home, you know, and figure out later what, what's happening. But just before that, after we were alerted by uh, my colleague yelling, get out, I did look out the window, looking south from my window, and I could see some smoke. Uh, the smoke apparently had been blown from the North Tower to the South Tower just by the wind. Mm -hmm. And also what looked like confetti, little pieces of paper, and they were in the wind, they were blowing up. Um, it turned out these were eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper hmm. that had blown out of the, the North Tower. So I made the decision to um, get out of the building, started to walk toward the stairwell, and other colleagues did as well. And it was a very kind of orderly walking down the steps from the 82nd floor. Uh, after a few minutes, we heard an announcement from the building. We we're in the stairway, but we could still hear the uh, public address system. The Port Authority announced that an aircraft has struck Tower 1, the North Tower. Tower 2, the South Tower, was secure. Hmm. Emergency help is on the way. We continue to walk down, and uh, because the stairways do not go directly down, um, that is, we walked from 82nd floor to 76, and there was a crossover. You know, you had to leave the stairway, walk about 10, 15 feet, and then the continuation of the stairway mm -hmm. would take you down further. In doing that, um, I noticed that there was a freight elevator and there were people on it. And my instincts just told me to get on the elevator, which I did. The elevator went uh, down to the 44th floor and it was just a few steps to get into the sky lobby. When I did that, uh, I could see hundreds of people milling about uh, there was a, a terminal from with the television news at the end of the sky lobby. I could I could see at least in the distance, you know, flames on the on the tube, and uh, I knew that there, there was a fire. But what was particularly striking was that there was a man with a bullhorn from the uh, port authority. They owned the buildings; mm -hmm. they still do. And he was uh, saying that we should return to our workstations. Really, we should not evacuate to the plaza. Hmm. The building is secure. As he was saying that, well, I should say that was it was a tragic misjudgment. The reason he was making those announcements is that after uh, the plane struck the North Tower, it caused debris to start to fall down into the plaza area. So people who were evacuating the North Tower especially were subject to this falling debris. And it was uh, uh, causing great injury and even death. Uh, and so they instructed people not to evacuate, just to stay there. They lacked the imagination to consider the possibility that there would be a second plane. Well, who could have, I mean, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, who, who knows looking back on these things, uh, hindsight, but uh, one plane hitting the tower was astounding and unbelievable, but that a second one would hit I mean, I'm not excusing their behavior, but, I mean, it seemed unimaginable. I mean, did you think 
that you were under, did anybody you know, or did you think that you were under some kind of coordinated attack, or was it just a one-time thing on the North Tower? When the first plane struck, uh, we didn't really know the nature of it, you know, whether it was a helicopter or some small private commercial plane or, right. or what. We just didn't know. But we didn't stop to think about it or ask questions. We just started to evacuate. So when the second plane struck, I knew immediately, this is a terrorist attack. Mm. And the building moved. I could feel it uh, going back and forth. You know, the buildings were meant to uh, sway up to three feet in, in the most extreme, you know, hurricane conditions or mm-hmm. like that. And normally with the very, very strong winds, it could, uh, they could sway up to maybe one or two feet. That would be the norm. Uh, when this plane struck the South Tower, I could feel uh, the, the building moving up to maybe three feet back and forth. I thought maybe it would collapse at that moment, but I'd better get out before the third plane comes. Oh, well, you there was some... one and there was two, there'll be a third plane. And there was, there was a third plane, there's a fourth plane, but they were headed to Washington, right. D.C. Um, so the, where we left off just for a moment uh, there uh, was that the Port Authority was telling people um, to go back to your workstations, right? Now, how was that received? Uh, As he was saying it, the second plane struck. Um, So in my mind, as he as I heard it initially, I just thought, no, I'm not I'm not staying here. I'm certainly not going back to my office. Um, You know, if there's any problem whatsoever, I don't see why I can't leave the building. And that's my instinct. And that's common sense. Um, But the plane struck just at that time. So there was no question. And then uh, People reacted by trying to get out as best they could. Um, there was small percentage, I'd say maybe 10%, one out of 10 people, you know, scream, maybe a little panic. But generally, it, w- it was calm, even though we felt the whole building and the whole room was impacted and things went flying across the room. At, at, that, point, so, at that point, were there any, um, any emergency service workers or firemen or anybody assisting, or was it just uh, all of you making your way down? It was only building occupants because, remember, at that time, the tower was secure and there was no reason for any first responders to come in. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were all going into the North Tower. And at that point, I, I looked around and there was a stairway, you know, uh, leading from the 44th floor. And I darted for it and went down the steps. I did not see anyone, including first responders, because it was just too, too soon. I ran down the steps and saw no one. And in fact, I was going so fast, you know, kind of like a, a monkey grabbing the, the railings that I realized uh, I better slow down a little bit because if I fall down and, and really hurt myself, then I could be, you know, really in trouble, unable to get out. So I just walked down all the way. And fortunately, this stairwell ended on the concourse, which is one level below street level. Hmm. Street level was problematic because where the plaza was at street level, that's where the debris was falling down. And not only from the North Tower, but now from the South Tower. And people, you say people generally, uh, with uh, sort of some minor exceptions, were uh, uh, being orderly and uh, keeping control of themselves under that situation. Uh, yeah, well, you know, New Yorkers are tough. <laughs> And uh, and they were just doing what they had to. Uh, the, it was really remarkable because the people did do what they had to uh, save themselves. And there were even tenants 
uh, building occupants who stop to help other tenants. You know, uh, a woman might be pregnant or somebody could have a, you know, a physical condition or disability that would prevent them from easily walking down the steps. And there were people who risked their lives to save other people. And in fact, some of them uh, were killed in the process. So it was a cooperative uh, type of atmosphere. It was not a, uh, a total panic uh, atmosphere. It's let's get out of the building as quickly as we can and help those who might need some help. So um, if you just uh, <clears throat> tuning into us here, we're uh, listening to William Raff, and he um, was on the 82nd floor of the South Tower uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, when the second plane hit, and he's talking about what happened to him that morning. Uh, when you were walking down from the 82nd floor, were there people walking down from floors above you? Uh, uh, I, that's a good question. You know, I was with, uh, my colleagues on the stairs, mm-hmm. um, and there, there may have been people. I would guess that, I would guess that there were just because I was on the stairwell and I wasn't paying attention to oh, right. who might've been a floor above or two, but, um, people were walking down. It was very common. And in fact, by the time the second plane struck, the building I was in, about 40% of the people had gotten out. At the moment when the first plane struck the North Tower, there were roughly 2,900 people in the South Tower who were located at or above the impact zone on the South Tower. Uh, the impact zone was between the 78th and the 85th floor. And so I would say between 78 and the 110th floor, the very top floor, uh, there were about 2,900 people. However, after the first plane struck the North Tower, people in the South Tower had some time, 17 minutes. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, the people above me, 2,900 people or so, uh, the number gr- reduced greatly to about 637, so that by the time the second plane struck the South Tower, there were only 637 um, uh, people who were at or above the impact zone. And that's key because where an individual was when the plane struck largely determined whether they lived or died. People who were at or above the impact zone in the North Tower, 1,355 people were trapped. There were no elevators operating and the stairwells were blocked. They could not get down. And there was a fire started at this at that point. The fires had already had started, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah the fire. Uh, but even so, you know, even if they could have gotten into a stairwell, they, they were blocked, so they just couldn't get down. There was no other way out. Uh, and in the South Tower, uh, it was largely true, but there were 18 uh, lucky people who were able to get find and get down a a stairwell that was partially blocked. Um, So that's how uh, most people were trapped of the uh, 600 and some, but some people were able to find their way down. Of those who were below the impact zone in the South Tower, there were only 11 who were killed. And in the North Tower, there are 107. So the point is that where you were in the building really uh, uh, predicted whether you would live or die. That's a big building, and um, to put it mildly, those were gigantic buildings, uh, some of the biggest buildings in the world. And um, 
you were working in an office with plenty of people. Did you know anybody uh, on other floors who worked in the building? Um, yes, I did know a uh, few people, not too many. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, did those people make it out? Uh, most people did. Um, you know, I knew some who were were killed, some people working in the building. Uh, but the people I knew who were killed were mostly my colleagues. Twenty-three, uh, sadly, were killed that day. Mm-hmm. And so when you got down to the concourse level, which was one level, is that below the street, one level below the street? Uh, yes. And so yes. what was uh, it? It was a shopping where the, shop, the shops were located on the concourse level. What was, uh, what was the uh, scene like in the concourse level? Uh, what, what was going on at that moment when you emerged into it? Uh, interestingly, uh, not much. Uh, it was kind of darkened because some of the lights had been turned out. Uh, the shores, the stores were shuttered. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps they hadn't opened yet, or you know, they had, they, they put down the shutters when the, after the first plane struck. Uh, but there, there were virtually virtually no one there. I didn't see anyone, and I just continued to walk through the concourse toward the E train, which was on the uh, northeast corner, still is connecting to the. Uh, the Oculus, which is part of the World Trade Center now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I walked into the E-Train, and I noted that um, they were not running. The door was open to the E-Train. You know, you didn't have to pay the fare. Right. That just sort of struck me as, oh, I guess the subways aren't operating anymore. Um, but fortunately, that platform, or the E-Train is, that connects to the World Trade Center, is a very long platform. And so I walked through the platform, and I came up to the street, Church Street, uh, around Murray Street, uh, about two or three blocks away from the World Trade Center. Oh. So just by chance, because the stairway I took uh, ended at the concourse, I was able to get through and avoid all the falling debris and come up blocks away. So um, at this point, uh, the buildings, both buildings have been hit, and they're on fire. And uh, when you... When you came up from where, you know, it was like about three blocks away, so when you came up to the street level, uh, the, uh, did you turn around and take a look uh, and see what was going on? I mean, what, what was your feeling? What was your experience after you made it back up to the street level? That was the first time I could see with my eyes these two horrific, horrendous fires. Uh, the North and the South Tower were just ablaze. And uh, it was the first time I witnessed it. I knew instinctively this is history, and perhaps I should just stand here and witness history. But my second thought was, no, I think uh, I should just go home. Mm-hmm. And I started to, uh, to walk. Uh, I live in the village, and just about two miles away, you know, uh, I could use a walk. Right. And by chance, a taxi driver came around the corner, the taxi driver had no idea what was happening because it was just happening at that time. And I got into the taxi. Uh, he dropped me off uh, nearby my home, and I was uh, in my apartment uh, maybe by 9.25. I looked out my living room windows, and I continued to watch as the towers burned. And you, oh, you could see from your, from your windows. What, what, uh, are you on a, uh, what kind of building was it? Were you on a high floor that you could see this? or? Uh, uh, 
uh, it was high enough. I live in a landmark neighborhood here on uh, West 10th Street, mm-hmm. and so there are a lot of uh, smaller buildings. Uh, you know, it's protected from all of the high-rise development that we see here here in uh, New York City. Out of control, meant, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, not in this neighborhood. So uh, even though I'm only on the 10th floor, I had a clear view to the trade centers, and of course the fires were on the upper floor, so I could see them very well. I was just looking out the window, watching. Um, I, I, you know, the, the psychology, the trauma that I experienced, in one way I was taking it in, but in another way I wasn't really processing what would happen or what was happening or what would happen, uh, nor all the you know, implications of what was happening. Um, so you were watching and you were watching um, the towers burn, and did you see the towers come down? Um, I had tried to, when I came home, I tried to contact uh, family members in New Jersey, and the telephone lines were blocked. But I did get a call from a friend who said, we have a mutual friend in Australia, and he knew I worked in the Trade Center, and he had just called my friend to ask about my well-being. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, oh, well, I'll call him. And I did. I'm on the phone with a friend from Australia watching the towers burn. And then at 9.59, the South Tower collapsed. Mm-hmm. In 10 seconds, it went from standing to not standing. I couldn't process this in my brain. I could see it, but all I could say to my friend was, Jeff, I see blue. Blue. I was looking at the blue sky mm. where the Trade Center had stood. Mm. I, couldn't, I couldn't think of what had happened, but I could see it. And Jeff had the presence of mind to say, William, um, have you spoken with your family? And I said, uh, well, I tried to call earlier, you know, lines were were blocked and well we're going to hang up now and you're going to call your family <laughs> hmm. and so we did and I called my sister and I just said hello and the shriek hmm. that I heard her give out the shriek of pure joy just hearing my voice she knew I was alive hmm. this is a, a 2001 I'm not can't locate my uh, technical technological history too well, but this is probably before a lot of people had ready access, or everybody absolutely had their own cell phone to call out. Uh, that's right. Um, well, I guess the only—I don't know if it's a positive or negative uh, result of, of uh, 9/11. There were so many negatives, but. Uh, I did go out and buy a, <laughs> a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Prior to that time, I did not have one. But it was really necessary, especially where I went back to work. Uh, we didn't have a permanent office. We were just working in a kind of temporary space, and we each used our own cell phone as a, a phone. Uh, is it all right with you if we take just a little break and then come back and I have uh, some more questions to ask you? Is that all right? Absolutely, sure. Okay, this is Mike Fader. Um, usually do a regular Friday morning program called The Turning Point uh, at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time here on PRN. Today we're uh, doing a special program to uh, recall, reflect, commemorate the events of uh, 9-11-2001,
which changed not the city, but uh, changed the entire country, actually the entire world in some ways forever. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and uh, we're speaking with William Rath, who uh, was in uh, the South Tower on the 82nd floor uh, the day that all this happened. Uh, we'll be back in just a little bit, and uh, we'll have some more questions for Mr. Rath. So much to talk about. I remember what the city was like that day. I was um, up on uh, on the Upper West Side where I live. My son um, was a um, a sophomore at um, actually he was a junior, not gen- junior, but uh, his year got disrupted at Stuyvesant High School, which is a few blocks away from the towers. And uh, uh, we didn't know where he was. We didn't know what happened to him. We didn't know where he was. He came home about. Um, I don't know, an hour or hour and a half later, having walked up, you know, since uh, there was no uh, transportation, walked up from um, the few miles from down where the school was. And um, um, a lot of people in his some of his classrooms, and including his classroom, were able to see um, the uh, towers uh, burn and come down. They sent them home after the towers came down, but he was covered with dust. And I remember that, among many other things that day. Um, so for what happened, uh, the next couple of days, uh, here you are in your apartment, having escaped from there. Um, people are maybe getting in touch with you. You're getting in touch with people. Can you describe what, let's say even what your neighborhood or what the city was like and what you were doing those, uh, those next couple of days? September 11th, as well as the days following, uh, what struck me was the silence, um, People, there was a shared sense of shock, sadness, uh, tragedy, and, uh, you know, a sense that something had changed. Uh, the city basically stopped uh, for about a week in general. The stock exchange was closed. Many offices were closed. Uh, and downtown, uh, from here in the, in the Greenwich Village and below in the lower, uh, even closer to the World Trade Center, uh, it became more extreme. Uh, this area, anywhere below 14th Street, became kind of like a, a military zone. Uh, we had National Guard all around, and they would only permit people who lived in the neighborhood to uh, come into the neighborhood. Um, and I remember I went out uh, jogging one day, and all I had were the keys of my apartment. Hmm. and uh, had a little difficulty getting back into my neighborhood because I had run outside. And But the, uh, the security was very uh, kind and let me, let me come home. And everything was, uh, everything was closed down, right? I mean, businesses were closed, right? Uh, yeah, on September 11th, uh, uh, you know, I'll tell you a, a, a brief 
uh, thing that it was around one o'clock and um, it was a Tuesday. And what do you do at that point? You know, I mean, I couldn't go. I couldn't do any work. Um, I spent a lot of time on the phone that day with uh, lots of people. But at one o'clock, I just had a sense of what do I do now? And I realized that the uh, on top of the Marriott Hotel at the World Trade Center, number three World Trade Center, there was a, a, a fitness company on the top two floors with a pool, had a great view of the Hudson River and so on. And I used to uh, go there regularly, but that was gone. So I thought I could use a little bit of exercise. You know, my heart was racing. Uh, I might have appeared calm, but I was really in shock. Uh, adrenaline was rushing through. So I went down the street. There was a New York sports club, and uh, although I wasn't a member, I asked the manager, you know, what is your policy for World Trade Center uh, survivors? Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, they, you know, it was just happening. They didn't have a policy, but he just was very kind and gave me a pass for a week. He said, come on in. And so I went in, and I had one of the best runs uh, on a treadmill that I I haven't had in a long time because – you know, my heart was racing, and I, I needed to burn that off. But then uh, shortly thereafter, they closed up. Everything closed down, uh, and the, the, this, this area was basically um, just quiet. Uh, there was no transportation, not so many cars. Uh, the only thing that was present, and it was, uh, it was haunting, were the sirens. We had sirens going, uh, you know, day and night, uh, going back and forth to the World Trade Center. Well, I also I remember so the, also there were there were jets, military jets flying over, which I had never really seen in New York City before. That was um, you know, alarming. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was a sense that uh, clearly, you know, just to walk out in the street, one would know that something had happened, something had changed. Uh, I live across the street from uh, a ladder uh, company, eighteen firehouse and immediately there there started to accumulate a, a, a memorial you know flowers and flowers and candles it, and and the the firefighters they lost eight firefighters mm. and um, neighbors just gathered in front of the firehouse it, it was really a coming together that I hadn't seen anything like it in New York New Yorkers came together and of course uh, the whole world came together. You know, it was the first truly global event. Two billion people, billion, watched this happen on television mainly mm. around the world. So two billion people had a, a, a direct experience of what had happened in real time. And the outpouring of support and solidarity and, and sympathy that came from all over the world is, is unprecedented. Uh, we had support from Iran, from Hamas, and from North Korea, in, uh, among so many other countries. And if you can imagine those those countries coming out and condemning the terrorism and supporting us. So, in a way, um, such a terrible act was met with the solidarity. Uh, you know, the world's people, the good people of the world basically said, no, this is not acceptable. Uh, we condemn this. Well, um, at the, and that's, it's, it's too bad that it takes that to, uh, to draw people, you know, to do the right thing. I mean, ever since then, everybody seems to have broken down in their constituent parts and everybody seems to be terrorizing everybody else. But uh, for a moment, that will happen when there's a disaster, you know, even in families. 
people don't speak to each other will come together. So um, yeah. I have a couple of questions that are more general questions about um, things, but one or two other personal questions before we get to that. Um, <clears throat> before these planes hit and afterwards, uh, do you have any uh, religious uh, you know, uh, devotion or particular faith, or were you religious, or are you now? Did it make any difference? Um, I think of myself as being very spiritual, mm. uh, not being religious. Um, but my sense of being was affected. Uh, I, I came to the realization that day, uh, well, you know, everybody knows that nobody lives forever, but I realized the immediacy and the contingency of living, that things can happen, you know, uh, it was a Tuesday and I was just going to work like everyone else. Um, there could be another case where someone gets in their car just to go to their office out in the suburbs or elsewhere, and there's a car accident and someone is killed. You know, it doesn't even make the newspapers. Mm. Um, so there was just a sense of, uh, you know, the, Im the uh, inevitability of death, uh, mortality. I, I certainly I confronted that. But what it left me was uh, with was such an appreciation for life that, you know, for every day I have, I'm going to make the most of it. Mm. Each day is precious. And and so in a way, my, you know, my spiritual life force, my spirit increased. Uh, I also, uh, you know, that day on September 11th, uh, I guess I heard news reports that they suspected Osama bin Laden was behind this. Right. And. I decided in my mind that I would not let Osama bin Laden ruin my life any more than what had already happened. And I would not let him do so by hating him back. You know, it's okay if these extremists hate us, but if we hate them back, then we harm ourselves. And so I was resolved not, not to, and there was justice eventually when they uh, did find him and kill him. But uh, I wouldn't say that there was any uh, increase or any change in my uh, religious or, or lack of religious feeling. Mm -hmm. um, there have been, and inevitably I have to ask you this, right? There have been uh, many, many theories about the attacks and the destruction of the towers. Uh, also, you know, including the attack on the Pentagon, Pentagon and the, the fourth plane that may have been headed for the Capitol building or the White House. But there are a lot of people, and I've spoken to some of them before on the radio and off the radio, who are very sure for what they say are scientific and political reasons that a lot of this was an inside job, you know, especially the towers coming down like this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a conspiracy by people, maybe agencies of the federal government to destroy the buildings and bring us into war, you know, an excuse to invade Afghanistan, later Iraq. Um, what, what's your opinion about that? Um, well, I would state that it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. Following this extraordinary, unique event, and after all, this was the first case of a steel frame building collapsing. Uh, and, of course, because of the nature of, you know, the World Trade Center, um, there was extensive scientific study by uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology looks into building collapses, uh, FEMA, uh, and of course the 9-11 Commission itself. 
did an extensive study over a period of years, uh, hundreds and hundreds of experts and hundreds or maybe thousands of pieces of evidence. They looked at all of this, and if you read the, uh, especially the, uh, the NIST, the Na- National Institute of Standards Technology Report, mm-hmm. they were able to trace back uh, so many things. Uh, it's incredible to believe ha- or to see, to read what they've reconstructed in terms of what actually happened. Uh, it's very clear that, um, well, the World Trade Center Twin Towers were built in 1966 through 73. Mm-hmm. There was at that time consideration of the possibility of an aircraft striking the building. After all, a B-25 military jet struck uh, the Empire State Building in 1945. It happened. Uh, It was an accident, um, but it had to be considered because these were such tall buildings. And Leslie Roberts, the chief uh, structural engineer of the World Trade Center, uh, knew that these buildings were designed to withstand the impact of the largest aircraft that was known at that time, Boeing 707. Mm-hmm. What actually struck were Boeing 767s, about 20% larger than 707s, and the building stood. The reason that they eventually collapsed was had more to do with, uh, first of all, the the planes, uh, the shock of the impact knocked off a lot of the uh, fireproofing material, you know, that was sprayed on the, right. the steel. So it made them more susceptible to heat. There was a gaping hole in each of the buildings, which would bring in plenty of oxygen, and the jet fuel uh, ignited and burned a big fireball and also caused all the contents of the building to ignite. Mm-hmm. Even though the jet fuel bur- burned out, you know, relatively quickly, within minutes, the inside contents of the building burned and burned and burned, and they created an environment of very high temperature, well over 1,000 degrees. Steel will not melt at this temperature, but it will become weaker. And so what happened after, well, in the South Tower, it was uh, 56 minutes, uh, a floor at the impact zone began to sag just mm-hmm. out of the weakness of the steel. Mm-hmm. And it pulled in some exterior columns, and then it broke from those exterior columns, and it fell to the, to the next level. And that created a progressive collapse, the momentum of which brought down the building. It fell straight down in about 10 seconds. Does, does it, um, do you get irritated, or do you uh, have any like feeling of, um, I mean, I, you know, I've had people, you know, who tell me that they're, they've been steel workers and structural, uh, you know, experts and everything. I mean, does it, you know, and I don't want to get into the diesel list because you go around sort of like a techno circle and it doesn't really get you anywhere. But, I mean, uh, does it irritate you when people, uh, when people more or less have given this up, I think, but when people were harping on this so much before? Well, you know, it's interesting, and I can only say that people have all kinds of ideas in their heads whether they're based on, you know, pure imagination or, or something. Uh, I've had people say to me, well, you know, this is very strange. They never found any evidence of the planes. Mm-hmm. I know that's not true because I, I've seen it. <laughs> uh, I've seen it at, at the museum. Um, so uh, I think it's a matter of being armed with the facts and knowing and having read the 9-11 Commission and the other reports that these are the facts. And if somebody thinks otherwise... Well, you know, people have all kinds of ideas in their heads, and 
some are based on reality and some not. I would wonder why anyone would have a motivation to create such a scenario, a conspiracy theory, if you will. But, you know, I'll leave that to them. I know what happened. I have the evidence. I have the support. You know, I can right. show a reference in, in, in the report and study. But um, beyond that, there's no evidence for anything mm-hmm. other than, than, what, than what we know. Uh, I guess one of the last questions would be, um, as far as a political point of view, I mean, you know, if you feel like volunteering what your political point of view, let's say, you know, you're Democrat, Republican, um, you have a certain political point of view about uh, the American foreign policy and America, because the world, our country changed for, it may, you know, may slightly, so slowly but surely the country's been going more and more towards executive power and, you know, maybe away from three branches of government, more towards executive power, ever since Roosevelt, really. But um, uh, as far as our uh, domestic policy, I mean, since that time, we've had uh, the Patriot Act, and uh, then we've had a huge increase in uh, the government basically, you know, uh, spying on its own citizens. And foreign policy, I mean, uh, we went into into Afghanistan, and then after that, uh, there was the invasion of Iraq, and one thing leads to another, and uh, we are in a different world than we were in before that. I mean, these these terrorist attacks were happening well before that, and Osama bin Laden was happening well before that, too, in Kenya and other places, too. But this changed everything, and it changed the way the government and the people who supported the government uh, in its efforts uh, to, uh, to tighten up on everything. Um, we've had... Um, well, basically, like I say, an invasion of, of people's privacy. That's my point of view, and I feel that very strongly. Then we've had Guantanamo. We've had torture of prisoners. Uh, we had the CIA black sites. Um, all of this happened as a result of this. Like I said, that may have happened anyhow, the way the world was going. But um, uh, how do you deal with, uh, with this kind of terrorism? And what is your point of view about this country's foreign policy? I know it's a big question, but did it change after this happened, or what? Well, I would make the statement that uh, this country has made many mistakes in its uh, foreign policy. Uh, goes back to Vietnam and maybe further. Uh, that September 11th, uh, created an atmosphere, and unfortunately, although I don't like to think that the terrorists succeeded in any way, and let me back up a moment and say, you know, the fatwa, that's sort of a religious uh, edict that uh, some of Bin Laden put out in 90, 1996, mm-hmm. basically predicted or, you know, stated their uh, al-Qaeda's intent to attack the United States. And their specific purpose in doing so was to have the United States withdraw its support from what they saw as corrupt regimes like Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and also to withdraw its support from Israel. Right. They failed. But what happened uh, as a result of 9-11 is there's a certain atmosphere of fear. And I think that uh, immediately following the Bush administration, uh, perhaps was fearful itself, you know, maybe there was a little paranoia, And that kind of led to this feeling that, uh, you know, it happened once and maybe Saddam Hussein is going to do it again to us. And so this whole, you know, movement to uh, remove uh, Saddam Hussein and and go into Iraq and we know what happened. So 
of course, in retrospect, that seems like a terrible misjudgment that uh, made things worse in the Middle East. Uh, uh, the United States, I don't think, will ever give up its support of Israel. Uh, what happens at Saudi Arabia, I think, will be a matter of, you know, how, how history evolves and the need for oil and, and all that and the other dynamics and politics in the Middle East. Um, the United States, uh, for some reason, is being attacked, but other countries are, too. In Europe, we see these attacks as well. Um I think that, well, but also in Muslim countries. I mean, uh, there are the uh, internecine wars. People are blowing each other up all over the place. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't see this as having anything to do with religion. It does have to do with uh, politics. Mm-hmm. But uh, the United States has kind of lost its uh, moral comp- compass and its moral leadership in the world. I think that's something that we had and that we've abdicated. Uh, you know, I won't comment on the current administration except to say that I don't think they've helped. No. Uh, and I think that if the United States is going to reestablish itself and gain the respect, we have to put values in place, respect for individuals, treatment uh, of individuals, just as the Constitution would have it, you know, that uh, a Declaration of Independence, people are created equal and should have equal rights. Everyone is the same. We welcome immigrants because immigration is what made this country great. People come here to make a life for themselves, and they contribute to the well-being of the country. Um, just the, the values mm-hmm. and the respect for individual rights uh, to worship, uh, have a religion or not. Uh, and that seems to have been uh, lost these days. Right. And other countries are, are seeing it, and I think it's just eroding our ability to, uh, you know, regain that sense of uh, being on the high road. <clears throat> we only have like a minute or two left. Uh, you've been listening to William Raff, who was, uh, who is a survivor of the World Trade Center attacks, uh, September 11, 2001, and um, uh, we have just like about a minute before we have to uh, go to our uh, end music. Uh, what will you be doing today? Uh, I will be at the nine, National 9-11 Memorial Museum. It's closed to the general public, but it's open only to family members of those who were killed. And I will be there to support them and to listen to them and to do whatever I can to make their life a little bit better. I would just add that uh, if uh, any listeners have not been able or had a chance to come to the uh, museum. Uh, it's really a, a wonderful place in a positive way to uh, kind of uplift and help people process the emotions that maybe they've tried to avoid all these years. Uh, and it's a place, it's a serene place to honor those who were killed, the first responders, and just to uh, respect 9-11 as an important part of our history that we should never, ever forget. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today and talking about what happened to you and and giving us your opinions. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for having me, Mike. All right. This is Mike Fader. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, I have a regular program here on PRN every Friday morning uh, live at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time called The Turning Point. And if you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S, .com, and there'll be a way to contact me there and get on any kind of mailing list that you want to get on.